Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Generation Anthropocene is supported by Stanford School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences. Find out more at earth.stanford.edu. We're also supported by Worldview Stanford, whose mission is to create learning experiences for professionals. To learn more about Worldview, visit worldview.stanford.edu. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans. 20,000. Agricultural. 250. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene. I'm your host, Miles Traer. Today, we're talking about cities. In our first story, a scientist derives the mathematical laws that explain cities all across Earth and throughout time. And in our second story, we examine how artificial light is affecting our lives, our planet, and our history. The trend towards city growth is one of the defining characteristics of early 21st century life. But the connections between rapid urbanization and global environmental change aren't always clear. How do scientists measure these connections? Is that even possible? And what do we learn when we measure that? Here to bring us the first story is Mike Osborne. Around the world, cities are growing at an astonishing rate. 200 years ago, only 3% of the world's population lived in cities. Today, it's more than half. And in the coming decades, as global population grows by billions, cities are going to absorb almost all of those additional human bodies. Given these projections, many environmentalists are thinking hard about how best to channel this wave of urbanization towards environmental sustainability. But it's hard to get traction without a deeper understanding of how cities actually work. Luis Betancourt is a professor of complex systems at the Santa Fe Institute, and he's taking a totally different approach to understanding cities. He's trying to derive a grand equation, literally a mathematical equation that describes all cities across the world and throughout history. So what are the defining characteristics of cities, and why is it that they become such a worldwide ubiquitous phenomenon? Essentially, Betancourt is trying to whittle down the variables necessary for explaining the fundamental properties of every city ever. Picture yourself actually trying to do this. 
you're in front of a chalkboard and someone says, write out the equation for city. So if you ask the question that way, you're looking for a comparative perspective, a perspective that allows you to look at many different cities and extract what's common uh, about them. In a 2013 science article, Betancourt did his best to chart out the city equation on his chalkboard. The variables in his model fall into three categories. There's the physical world. How many roads, pipes, telephone wires, and electric lines? How much space is taken up by buildings, and how much is left undeveloped? Where do people live and work? Next, there's economic information, like the number of patents as a measure of innovation. There's also employment, GDP, and the variety of professions. Shop clerks, scientists, car mechanics. All that speaks to sort of socioeconomic activity. The, the final interesting part of that is basically how are people connected, how they interact with each other, what do they do with each other when they interact. As Betancourt puts it, cities are not just concentrations of people, they're concentrations of social networks. And our social network capacity changes with new technologies. Cars, for example, which have in so many ways shaped the modern city, allow for movement into new pockets and neighborhoods. Smartphones blow open the possibilities for social development. Betancourt's equation tries to account for all potential social interactions, all the ways in which cities enable us to connect. There's more to his city equation, but this is the basic framework. And it should be said that he's taking a fundamentally different approach from other urban researchers. For Betancourt, the function of a city is way more important than the form. It's not what cities look like. It's what they do. You should think of a city, or cities in general, as a means to an end. The telecommunications technology, transportation, these are all means to get to this dynamics. That's the nature of the problem that cities solve. For Betancourt, cities solve problems. That's their whole function. They give us a platform for human interaction so that we can fulfill our ever-evolving wants and needs. So, how might cities help solve environmental problems? Betancourt's equation doesn't give us an explicit answer, but it does offer new insights into how we might think about the problem. First, you have to look at what cities accomplish from an environmental perspective. It's a bit of a mixed bag. At the large scale, urbanization is correlated with increased development, which means more consumption, especially energy consumption. The richer a country is, the more urban its population and the more energy it uses. However, when we look at cities big and small in the same nation, we tend to see that the energy per capita in larger cities is often smaller than in smaller cities. If you think about it, this makes sense. When people live in higher density, more people can walk or take public transit. You also need less lighting, less heating, and less AC per person. But Betancourt is quick to note that these environmental benefits aren't part of any grand plan. They're more like an accidental byproduct. Cities are really not built primarily to save energy. We hear a lot of talk lately about green cities, but historically cities were not designed to solve sustainability issues. Some of them just happen to have that characteristic. But as environmental problems become more pressing, perhaps we can be more intentional about sustainability. How can we actually create cities that are resilient to environmental change? I think there are two ways in which people, two main ways in which people discuss resilience. One is the ability of a system to bounce back, to come back to its state after it's been perturbed. Climate change will bring more extreme weather events. So one aspect of resilience is a city's ability to rebound from catastrophic events. 
This is the adaptation aspect of resilience. But for Betancourt, there's also a mitigation component. How might we use our cities to minimize environmental harms in the first place? And this gets back to the richness of the social network. If you build infrastructure or if you build social and political organizations in a city, well, what does that do to influence people's lives? How is it that it makes those lives better, that makes people more collaborative, more able to trust each other, more able to uh, solve problems or not? How do both the built environment and social connectivity collaborate to boost resilience? If cities solve problems, the social fabric is where the potential resides. It's the unknown variable in the city equation. Again, there's no simple answer, but what Betancourt's research suggests is that maybe what's missing is a quality of aspiration. Perhaps we need to be thinking more intentionally about the direction that we, as a city-based society, would like to grow. The way I think we're starting to understand cities is, is they're really networks where our own individual agency and imagination and, and ability to change things in directions we like can be empowered and can be amplified. Urbanization is inescapable in the Anthropocene. If we want to take advantage of this reality, we should envision the cities of the future as places where we want to be. Maybe we can find a way to optimize the urban equation and maximize the potential of our human network. That was Mike Osborne, and you're listening to Generation Anthropocene. Cities are where we come together to realize our social and economic potential. And counterintuitively, they might also be where solutions to environmental issues emerge. But urbanization comes with costs that aren't always easy to account for. One of the hidden costs is darkness. Our cities cloak us in the orange glow of street lamps, the bright whites of LEDs, the multicolored buzz of neon. Our artificial light is affecting us in more ways than we realize. Our next story is brought to us by Alexandra Piers, and she explores the price of losing darkness. Here's Alexandra. 400 years ago, the famous Italian astronomer Galileo stared up at the Milky Way, seeing its faint cloud of light spread like dust across the sky. Before Galileo and his telescope, people had gazed at the Milky Way and argued about what was up there. Looking through his telescope, Galileo finally had an answer. What looked like a solid cluster of light was actually groups of stars, too faint to see with the naked eye. Today, Galileo would need a powerful telescope to see the Milky Way at all. In Italy, it's impossible to see the Milky Way with your bare eyes. The reason is light pollution. Calculations show that roughly two-thirds of U.S. and European populations can no longer even faintly see the Milky Way from their homes. And we've reached a period in which 50% of the world's population now lives in cities. And so worldwide, roughly 50% of the children born this year will probably never see the Milky Way in their lives. That was Tyler Nordgren, a professor of physics and astronomy at the University of Redlands in Southern California. Nordgren also works with the National Park Service, developing programs that take people into the wilderness after dark 
to study the night sky. Street lamps, office buildings, porch lights, and cars all add up to create what astronomers call sky glow. In cities and towns worldwide, domes of artificial light block our ability to see the stars. All right, the stars are very pretty, you might say, but what's the big deal? So what if we can't see the Milky Way? The thing is, light pollution isn't just affecting our ability to see the stars. It's also affecting wildlife and ecosystems. Take, for example, sea turtles in Florida. Sea turtles come up on the Florida coast to lay their eggs. And when those eggs hatch, there is something hardwired into the brains of those little baby sea turtles that they know they have to crawl to the sea in order to survive. And in their brains, finding the sea seems to be associated with following the light. Unfortunately, when most sea turtles hatch these days, the brightest thing in the sky is not the moon or the stars out over the sea. It's the housing development, the condominiums, the gas station in the other direction. Many animals are nocturnal, living, hunting, and mating all under the safe cover of darkness. Birds that migrate during the night rely on lighting cues from the stars and the moon to navigate. When flying through areas of light pollution, birds crash into buildings or circle around in confusion until they become exhausted. But it's not just animals that are being affected. Excessive light can also have negative impacts on humans. There are studies that, that show uh, that those people who work at night who are no longer experience a period of true darkness are at a higher risk of, of developing cancers. Our melatonin that helps potentially fight cancers, that melatonin production requires darkness in order to happen. And as we light up our world, we are losing that true darkness. In 2012, the American Medical Association released a report on light pollution and human health. The report includes a section about the link between excessive light and cancer. One of the conclusions from the AMA is that, quote, many species, including humans, need darkness to thrive and survive. The problem of light pollution has expanded so quickly that we don't yet know all the implications. One thing we do know is that this is a new phenomenon, and in that way, it disconnects us from the rest of history. The history of science is a history of astronomy. The history of our understanding of where we are in this universe and what it means to be a citizen of the universe is a history of astronomy. And we are shutting that window. We are drawing a curtain around our planet. And that curiosity that has driven us is something that we are now tinkering with and potentially turning off by turning off the stars. Humans have sought guidance from the stars for thousands of years. We learn to survive by looking up at the stars to navigate across the world and calculate the changing seasons. And as we gazed up, we felt a sense of curiosity and wonder about the universe. Today we may not need astronomy to know when to harvest our crops or how to sail the seas. But with more and more people seeing fewer and fewer stars, are we losing something else? Something immeasurable? If all of this makes you feel a little wistful, it may be comforting to know that the stars are closer than you might think. Just a day away, a day's drive, 
and you can be out into some wonderful darkness, and you can see the Milky Way, the way, well, the way almost everyone used to be able to see it up until just a couple hundred years ago. It'll be as refreshing and rejuvenating as standing on a mountaintop and seeing glaciers and rivers and canyons around you. It really does help you put your life in perspective, and rather than feeling small, it helps bring back this sense of we are part of something vast and great and beautiful. You can learn more about Tyler Nordgren on his website, tylernordgren.com, including his academic and educational work. You can also see some of his illustrations. To learn more about the United States National Parks' night sky programs, you can visit their website, nature.nps.gov night. This episode was produced by Leslie Chang, Mike Osborne, and me, Miles Traer. Our theme music is by Maserati. Thanks to Tom Hayden. We also want to thank Pam Matson, Dean of Stanford School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences. This episode was recorded at KZSU Stanford 90.1.